This is a special one-hour broadcast of Socolow. Does the American middle class have a future? Joining us are California Secretary of Education Richard Reardon, philanthropist Eli Broad, and David Crane, special advisor to Governor Schwarzenegger. Joel Kotkin, author of The City, A Global History, moderates tonight's discussion. Uh, thank you very much. Of course, the first question everyone has when they see that headline is, well, what do these guys know about the middle class? Uh, <laughs> they left that a long time ago. But um, I know both of these gentlemen, and uh, they come from the, from the middle class, and I think their passion and concern about this issue grows out of their own personal experience. So I'd like to start off maybe by asking uh, Eli if you could talk a little bit about your own background and, um, and how this issue of the middle class came up to you. Well, let me start out by saying, as we all know, uh, the greatness of America's democracy is a strong middle class, and that's been the case since the founding of our republic. Uh, unfortunately, times have changed. We now have a world of free trade. We've gone from an industrial economy to an information economy. So many of the middle class jobs that I was raised in the midst of are gone. They're not coming back. Having said that, let me tell you a bit about my background. I'm the son of Lithuanian immigrants who came here in the 20s. I was fortunate in getting a good public school education in Detroit Public Schools, and then went on to a land-grant university. Uh, I did all of that. I had several jobs along the way while I was in school, and I was very fortunate. I uh, became a young CPA, and I guess I entered the middle class. About the same time uh, as I graduated, Edie and I, who's in the front row, got married, and we raised a family, and we enjoyed that middle class uh, uh, lifestyle. Didn't last as long as uh, perhaps uh, others did. And then that gave me the opportunity to become an entrepreneur and start Kaufman Abroad, now KB Home, and then Sun America. And I think I owe all of that to the education I received. Now, if you think about the middle class and how do you end up with a strong middle class, I think you need three things. I think you need a high percentage of home ownership. I think you need a great education system and not one that served us 50 years ago, but one that serves us today. You need access to post-secondary education, whether it's a community college, a trade school, or a four-year college or university. And lastly, I think hardworking families have to earn enough to have a decent standard of living or perhaps save a few dollars for their kids. So that's briefly my story, Joel. Um, Dick, um, I would like to know your thoughts, your background. I know you're from New York, as I am. Uh, I was born in 1930 in beginning of the Depression. Uh, my family is actually upper middle class, although interestingly enough, uh, the standard of living we uh, had in those days as upper middle class was lower than middle class has today, and I think because technology has done so much for creation of wealth today. Uh, also, uh, for whatever reason, I worked from the time I was about eight or nine years old selling magazines, deliver delivering newspapers, caddying. Uh, when I was 15, I got a job in a 7-Up bottling uh, factory. Uh, and. All kids did it that day. It was part of the culture. But of course, also, as I got older, uh, very few children were born during the Depression, relatively. And so we had almost a monopoly on us who were well-educated, on well-educated uh, people. And therefore, we had tremendous jobs open to us. And uh, the future was ours. I went on to graduate from Princeton. Uh, served in Korea and then went to Michigan Law School, came out, joined O'Melveny and Myers uh, out here, and came out to the greatest place in the world. It was a meritocracy. They didn't care who your parents were as long as you did your job. You'd step off the curb in the middle of a block and all the traffic would stop. Now that's changed. <laughs> uh, but I fell in love with Los Angeles and California then, and I'm still in love with it. 
Well, um, one of the questions, of course, um, is not just the American middle class, but of course the California middle class. And uh, in many ways, m there are studies that would reveal that California's middle class is under more stress, in part because of the cost of housing, um, because of the movement of jobs to other states and other countries that has affected the middle class. Um, David, uh, you're here representing the governor, and uh, is there anything that in the governor's program or that the governor can do to uh, lower this gap between the, the rich and the poor and the shrinking of the middle class? Don't you want to hear about my middle class background first? <laughs> <laughs> we'll save that for the next show. Um, I, I, the answer is yes, and I think our policy would probably be the same whether the middle class was shrinking or growing, whether or not there was a, the gap was increasing or, or decreasing. Uh, government, I, I think the answer to the problem is to find ways to increase wealth in the hands of people and allow them to use that wealth in ways that will uh, permit them to have uh, the accoutrements of a middle class existence. That means to me um, increasing access to lifelong learning and uh, so that people can have the skill sets which are necessary to derive the income so they can be in the middle class and that will become increasingly important because careers are changing more rapidly now than they were in the past. It in, uh, we have to increase access to job opportunities which means we have to have more jobs available for people, and that usually translates into lowering the cost of job creation. Um, increasing access to home ownership, which means to the extent that one can do so in a place as glorious as California where everybody wants to live, so prices are going to rise to some extent just because of the extraordinary demand that will take place here, government should do what it can to, to enforce laws at the lowest possible cost so that those homes can be built at the lowest possible cost. And I suppose the last is um, to provide government services at the lowest possible cost to the taxpayer so that people can keep as much of the wealth that they earn and spend it on those, those items that give them a middle class existence. Well, is, is that enough, Eli? Is, um, I mean, is, is this enough to guarantee uh, a movement up into the middle class, let's say from the working class and from the poor? Well, I think we have to do a number of things. I agree with David with regard to making home ownership uh, an even greater priority than it is, and government can do a number of things. Uh, one, our land use policies uh, uh, have to change because the biggest part of the cost of a home is not its construction. It's the cost of, of land. It's the cost of getting land entitled. It's the cost of all the government exactions. Uh, so there's a great deal that can be done there. Uh, with regard to education, there's no question in my mind that K-12 education in America in urban areas like Los Angeles uh, is living in a different century than our economy is. And we need major restructuring and major reform of public education in urban areas, if not all in all America. You know, at one time we had the number one graduation rate of high school students in the world. Today we're number 10. And I could toss a lot of other statistics at you with regard to uh, the ever-increasing dropout rates in urban areas and a number of other things. And access to higher education, post-secondary education of any type, uh, is more difficult today than perhaps it was one, two, or three decades ago. And lastly, uh, about 25% of uh, all Americans uh, earn be below $25,000 a year. So we've got to deal with all of those things. And yes, if we have a growing economy, that helps. We want to create wealth. But just a trickle down of wealth is not going to get the job done. I think we need governmental policies to foster home ownership, to improve education. I don't mean just tossing money at it. And lastly, to make sure that hardworking American families do have a living wage of some sort. Uh, Joel, let me, uh, when I suggested we have this forum, uh, what I was thinking about was this growing gap uh, between the rich and the poor. And since, like, since 1979, the top 1% of uh, wealth, wealthy people in our country, their income has grown 139%. The middle fifth has grown only 17%, and the lower 1% has grown 8%. And this 
has increased dramatically during the Clinton boom years, and it's increasing dramatically now. That gap is growing. It hasn't gotten less. And there are a lot of reasons for it. Uh, the main ones are we've lost a lot of the quality manufacturing jobs to countries overseas, and we're seeing more and more of that. Technology has replaced a lot of jobs. It takes 5% the number of man hours to build an automobile today than it did 50 years ago, 25% the number of man hours to uh, do all the agriculture in California. And uh, the technology is growing exponentially. You've seen iPods and things, the internet that is just mind-boggling, what's just happened the last two or uh, three years. So we are losing these quality jobs. They're being replaced by service jobs. And I think the leadership has to look at not how you close that gap artificially or tax artificially because the result of that will be that the rich and their businesses and their jobs will leave the state, leave the country if you do that. But we have to find out how we have more sophisticated service jobs where they, the wages are reasonable so that people can live in dig with dignity uh, and raise families and own houses. Well, maybe this is um, I, something that I think is very controversial and I think important for government to think about is Eli was talking about a, a living wage, whether it was a higher minimum wage or a, a negative income tax or something along those lines. Um, I mean, uh, David, I know you're a little bit of a libertarian, free market guy. How does that strike you? But you didn't tell me about the Democrat part is, that goes with it as well. Right. <laughs> um, well, if, if it was effective, then it might be an interesting concept. But when has it ever been effective to enforce a minimum wage in terms of creating wealth for people so that they can be in the middle class? Uh, I'll, I'll ask Eli. It's not my position. Well... <laughs> I don't think it creates wealth, but it, it, it at least people uh, it allows people to have a decent standard of living and hopefully save a few dollars to educate their children. But well, wait, wait, that's Eli. You're talking about not talking about the living wage ordinances. Living? No, no, I'm not talking about the ordinance. The ordinances distribute wealth to very few, redistribute to very few people. It's a uh, uh, like a lottery game and. Uh, essentially doesn't add the wealth, and you have to add to the overall wealth so you have more higher quality jobs for everybody, and it doesn't do that. But, I mean, the bottom line, do you need to have some sort of higher floor for people who are working 40 hours a week, working hard, and just can't make it? Well, clearly you have to, but it's dangerous to have government dictate that because we are, as Tom Friedman is coming out with a book uh, within a month or so called the world is flat and he means flat economically with the internet technology you can run companies in the United States or any place from any place in the world uh, with this technology so we're competing with more and more with other countries and to artificially do things will make us less competitive and hurt us uh, in the long run I think another way of saying it is if it were a static model then sure raise the wage but it's not a static model so when you raise the wage artificially, something happens somewhere else. Somebody else loses a job. Right. There are fewer jobs to offer people at any wage level. It would be delightful if it was a good solution, but it doesn't work. It, if it did, I mean, I'd, I'd love to see an example of where it does. Well, England in the 40s and 50s started uh, having uh, taxes on people's wealth, plus they had uh, taxed 90 percent of the income of the wealthy. And it bankrupted the country. By the end of the uh, 1950s, the wealthy had left uh, England, the Beatles, the scientists, and everybody had left England. Well, I mean, the, the question is, okay, if, we, if we're not going to do it through this method, through the redistribution method, then obviously we want to do it through some other method. One is economic growth. Another one is education. You're the education secretary for the state of California. What... What, what do we do? I mean, we seem to be making not very much progress. Uh, Governor Schwarzenegger, and I should say with a huge help from Eli Brode, are the, is a big pusher for systemic change. And as somebody said that putting, trying to buy good education uh, without systemic change is just going to result in more and more mediocrity. And by systemic change, you may have to put accountability into the system. That's why Governor Schwarzenegger wants to have local control 
And you can't have local control without power over the budgets, without power over how you meet academic standards, and then local accountability, holding people accountable for how the children do. But uh, is that practical? Is that something that could possibly happen in California without a ballot measure? Well, it's got to happen one way or the other, and it will happen as things get worse and worse and worse. I think it may happen now with a ballot member uh, because people are fed up with how badly our children are doing. As Eli pointed out, we've gone from you know, one of the tops in the world to uh, you know, doing terribly. And, of course, California has suffered more than a lot of other states and has deteriorated more. I agree with Secretary Reardon. Education is not simply the problems aren't solved by just tossing money at it. If that was the case, Washington, D.C., which spends $11,700 a student, would have a great education system. It's amongst the worst in the country. So we really need fundamental reform, which is taking place in a number of other cities, like New York City, where... I just was where uh, the mayor has control of schools, as is Mayor Daley in Chicago. Uh, Philadelphia, which was a disaster, is turning around because Governor Riddell appointed a control board and took over the schools. Uh, got Paul Vallis, the former superintendent of Chicago, to run them. And uh, they're doing wonderful things there very rapidly. So I don't think it's a question of just tossing money at it. I think we need fundamental change in the way we govern our school systems, the way we manage them from the superintendent down to the principal. Uh, and if you really look at history, where have we been since Brown versus Board of Education 50 years and eight months ago? Student achievement's not improved. The gap between the poor and middle class has actually widened. The gap between ethnic groups has widened. But yet... Spending in real dollars in education has gone up, I think, 70% during that same period of time. So we do need fundamental reform, and I believe if we're going to see change in education, it's not going to come from local school boards, of which there's 16,000 in America. It's going to come from governors and big city mayors. And I think that's, that's one of the answers, because if we don't close the gap, we're in deep trouble, and the only way to close the gap is to have uh, a better system of public education and access to post-secondary education. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, and including vocational education on a lifelong basis for the reason I mentioned before, which is that careers change more rapidly now than ever before. As Dick mentioned, we live in a flat world, and so we're going to have increasing competition uh, going forward. People have to be in a position where they can, where they can learn new skills at any stage of their life. Well, one of the issues I think we were talking about earlier is the high rate, uh, even when people go into the workforce, not only are they unprepared, but they're in many cases indifferent or don't show up, and there seems to be a, a, a little bit of, a, of an attitude problem, at least when you talk to employers, particularly employers here in California. Um, is there something that, that we can do about that? Is, is part of the problem a problem with parents? Um, is, that, um, is there something about the way we raise children that makes this worse? Well, clearly, I think uh, we all know that uh, uh, marriages haven't uh, lasted. You have so many single-family parents. You have parents who are on drugs. And uh, as you see in a lot of the schools in the poor areas, kids will uh, come into kindergarten never having had a book read to them when they were younger, not knowing the difference in colors or what a pair of scissors are. And, uh, but we can't blame the parents. I mean, they may, maybe that's the cause. But we as leaders can't turn our backs on those children. We have to find ways to help those children. And what Governor Schwarzenegger wants, he wants to take the, they call it decile one, two, and three schools, the poorest schools, and bring these kids in a year earlier so you can prepare them so they're ready to learn to read, write, and do math when they get into kindergarten. So you're talking about age four or something like that? Yes, age four, right. But I just want to take issue with your description of the workforce because I don't think, I deal with a lot of employers, both nonprofit and for-profit in the state of California, all over the state, and it's an enormous economy. You have to remember there are 36 million people, $1.5 trillion economy, the state is very different in, you know, businesses in Temecula operate very differently than businesses in Redding. Uh, I don't hear from very many employers that we have an absenteeism problem, we have a productivity problem. I, I don't hear that very often. I hear it in certain parts of the state. Certain cities have a problem with that. 
but it's not endemic. Do you want to identify those no. places? Oh. No, because I don't think there would be any virtue in doing so, but um, it, it's, a, it's, it, it's not a problem, I would say. I think these other things are problems. The fact is that we don't have sufficient education for people, and we don't have accountability. And you can't ask yourselves right now who is accountable for K-12 through education in the state of California. You can't, there, it's, in everything else in life, you like having somebody who's accountable for something. So you can say, you didn't do a good job, so you're out of here, and I'm going to replace you with somebody else. It's, it's not working, and that's what's, that that's probably has the biggest impact, in my view, on people's ability to have a middle-class existence, or better, going if forward. You, if you go into uh, produce uh, factories where they're sorting fru fruits or nuts or vegetables, uh, you'll see a lot fewer employees because they use computers, lasers, and others. But those employees are the hardest working because they're paid well and uh, they, they want to keep their jobs. But uh, maybe one question that has been raised, and, and I've seen this with uh, some of the migration numbers, people work hard, they develop skills, but they still have to leave California because they can't afford to buy a house. Is there anything that can be done to reverse that situation? Uh, we're losing young doctors who get out of residency as pediatric uh, specialists or something are leaving because they can't buy a house in Los Angeles. And as Eli mentioned earlier, uh, we have all these rules, laws, regulations, uh, how costly it is to get entitlements. You get sued by lawyers that delay things. And the, the bottom line is it costs like 50% more or even more than that to build a house in California. So we have to think out outside the box. We have to change all these anti-business, anti-housing uh, laws and regulations that raise the cost. And that's what leaders have to do. And then you have to do something like John Jurdy, who I think is the greatest urban architect in the world, who uh, has an office in Venice, California, who thinks that a single-family residence is, should be a thing of the past and that we should build these small towns of 2,000, 10,000, in small, medium-sized condos. We have stores on the bottom floors. We have recreation areas where you can only use cars to go to other cities. But you're going to have to think that way if the average person is going to be able to afford to own their own place of living. Well, as long as they, they grandfather in my house and they, they take away yours, it's okay. Well, we'll take away You're listening to Sokolo on 89.3 KPCC. Stay tuned. When we return, our panel answers questions from the audience on a variety of subjects, ranging from public education and the possibility of breaking up the LAUSD to the future of entrepreneurs in our society. <laughs> <laughs> 